Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sun, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet, wherever you might be listening from today. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders of the past, those of the present, and the emerging elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Peregrine Centre's Rural Mental Health Podcast. I'm Dale Raftery. I'm a psychologist and research associate at the Peregrine Centre. On the podcast today, we're talking about working with people who identify as LGBTQIA+, with a particular focus on those who are transgender or gender diverse. As with every podcast episode, the questions we're asking today have been developed from questions asked by mental health practitioners around the state. Today, I'm very fortunate to be talking to three people with a lot of experience in this area. I'm talking to Kerry Power, Dr. Jared Hannum, and Dr. Tasha McClellan from Gateway Health in Wodonga. Uh, welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. Um, so to start, can I get you each to just introduce yourselves and give a bit of a background? I might start with uh, Dr. Hannum, if that's okay. Thanks, Dale. Uh, so my name is Jared. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I work with the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service in Albury-Wodonga. And as a part of that, we also work with the Gateway Health Gender Service. Uh, I've been with the Gender Service now for about a year. Hadn't done a lot of work in that area prior uh, to coming up here, but have really enjoyed it since. And yeah, really excited to be here. Great. Thank you. All right. Um, Tash, we'll go to you next. All right. So hi, I'm Tash. I work as a GP at the Gateway Health Medical Practice. I've also done a master's degree, in, which included studies on sex, gender and sexuality, which kind of started me to get into this area. And I think I've been working with the transgender and gender diverse community now for four years and have found it incredibly rewarding. Beautiful. Thank you. And Carrie. Yes, hi. My name's Kerry Power. I'm the care coordinator of the Gender Service here at Gateway Health Wodonga been in this role now for nearly five years and prior to that I, I was working as a volunteer probably four years prior to that and one of the founders of the gender service here. Lovely thank you very much. Okay so we'll just start with the basics so we've got LGBTQIA. Tash what do all those letters mean? Okay so LGBTQIA so lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, and A can stand for ally or asexual. So lesbian refers to women who are attracted to women. Gay is men attracted to men. Bisexual individuals traditionally have been defined as being attracted to both men and women. So queer can kind of be an umbrella term that encompasses a wide range of identities and doesn't risk excluding groups that that acronym might leave out. Some people find the term queer is ambiguous and that's appealing because it gives a sense of community without the need for a, a more specific label. And like I said, A can be asexual or it can be ally. And I know all of us who work with transgender people are allies. Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of the time when we see that acronym, there's a plus on the end of it. Can you talk to what that means? Yeah, sure. So the plus is about including people who don't fit strictly into those definitions. They may include, for example, someone who's pansexual, which can identify as 
attracted to male, female, trans women, trans men, non-binary. In terms of gender, it also includes people who identify as gender fluid or non-binary. So it's about including everyone without the need for specific labels. So within that acronym, you know, you were talking about sort of the sexual attraction and then we have the gender identity. What's the difference between the two? So that's a really good question. Um, I only learnt the difference between these and I can't believe I didn't know them beforehand. It's really important to know the difference between sexual orientation, sex and gender identity. And there's a really good explanation. So if people Google the term gender unicorn, it's got a really nice visual explanation of that. Defining them, sex assigned at birth refers to your chromosomes, your hormones, and I guess the anatomical parts you were born with. Sexual orientation is different. It refers to who you are attracted to and includes but is not limited to lesbian, gay, bisexual, as in the acronym, but also others. So gender is one's inner sense of being male, female, both or neither. In terms of gender, it's important to I guess, know the difference between transgender and cisgender, which I get asked a lot. Mm -hmm. Transgender refers to someone whose gender identity is different to the sex that they were assigned at birth. Cisgender refers to someone whose gender identity aligns with someone with the sex that they were assigned at birth. So I think that's important to know all the differences. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make. A lot of people I've encountered aren't familiar with the term cis, and so when it gets brought up, it's a bit like, oh, what does that mean? Um, yeah. So it's a nice one to point out. All right. So there's a lot in there, right? Um, and and through your introductions, we sort of heard that there's been a lot of study to, I guess, understand the issues and understand even what those letters mean. So why would I, as a mental health practitioner, learn about LGBTQIA plus issues? Um, Jared, I might throw this one to you. So sexuality and gender diverse people, they suffer from the stress of being a minority and being marginalised, the same as any minority group would. But this is generally more severe for those who are gender diverse in our community. Uh, They experience high rates of social exclusion, of family rejection, of bullying and stigma and discrimination. And this in turn leads to higher rates of mental illness. So mainstream health services, they're often not experienced as safe members of the LGBTIQ plus community. And they're even less likely to be experienced as affirming for gender diverse young people. So some people might be aware already that around three quarters of of people who are gender diverse experience depression, anxiety and self-harm. And almost half actually attempt suicide before the age of 25. Other disorders such as eating disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder are also more common. It is very important. I think the mental health practitioners do learn about LGBTQI plus issues. Yeah, absolutely. They're massive rates. Okay, so further to that, and I guess thinking about the history of of how the DSMs treated this, is it a mental illness? No, Dale, it's not an illness. So uh, in a strict sense, and, and referring to DSM and other diagnostic coding tools, uh, gender dysphoria is a diagnosis. Uh, what's a diagnosis? Well, it's a cluster of signs or symptoms that informs how we uh, communicate something a, a person might have and how we refer and how we treat something. Uh, so gender dysphoria is in these diagnostic coding tools as a diagnosis. We have heard there's a lot of associated distress, and that's actually one of the diagnostic criteria for having gender dysphoria is that you've got a, a sense of uh, incongruence between your assigned and and your affirmed gender, which has been persistent and consistent over a, a particular period of time uh, with associated distress. 
and that associated stress may well lead to other other problems. It may lead to mental illness such as social anxiety or depression. Uh, but it's not called gender dysphoria disorder. Uh, it is not a disorder. Uh, it's not a mental illness. Uh, in the past, it was called gender identity disorder, and it's no longer called that because it's been recognised that gender dysphoria is is not an illness. Finally, I'd say it's important to remind young people with gender dysphoria that it's not an illness that they have, but you do need to recognise they may require some additional support for some of the the follow-on effects, uh, both the social effects and, and the mental health effects of having gender dysphoria. Growing up, sexuality or gender diverse, there's a sense of, of difference, of exclusion, of, of not being able to connect with people and, and talk with people and about what they may be experiencing. Young people who are gender or sexuality diverse may be uncertain about themselves and feel unsafe in a lot of environments and not have the ability to talk uh, openly about what their experiences are so may internalize or externalize that distress internalizing it is is what's likely to lead to a lot of those mental health problems mm. uh, externalizing it can sometimes lead to anger and, and further alienation of the of the young person yeah absolutely and i think you know, if we think about um kids in particular in a rural context where they perhaps don't have as much access to different people that would i imagine be a bit bigger that sense of loneliness and exclusion so what are the risks if someone doesn't get appropriate and affirming care? So really, it risks being another instance of exclusion or invalidation uh, or discrimination. Uh, it risks being another instance where the young person is made to feel inadequate or, or, or not good enough or, or different in a way that's, uh, that's unhealthy or unhelpful. So as we've already spoken about, this brings up the further risk of isolation and exclusion and internalised stigma uh, and poor mental health. So bearing in mind, the, you know, these are children and teenagers that that we're talking about specifically today. Mm-hmm. I also want to think a bit about the developmental risks. So it's easy to imagine that these people might become depressed or might develop suicidal ideation when they become isolated and disconnected. But often what's not appreciated is the developmental risks for these young people. So thinking they might be in their early teenage years, entering puberty, you know, there's a real risk Uh, If they're disconnected from all of these things, there's a risk to their schooling, a risk to establishing friendships and relationships, engaging in interests and hobbies that help them interact with the world and develop self-esteem. Things like getting their first job, getting their driver's license. If someone's disconnected from the world around them, all of these things, they're going going to be delayed or or perhaps not happen at all. So we often think about developmental milestones as, as things like learning to talk, learning to walk. But in adolescence, this is quite different. We're talking about connecting socially, developing the skills and, and the relationships to, to carry into adulthood. So if these milestones aren't met, the younger person may enter adulthood at a significant disadvantage, which can persist throughout their life in terms of education and employment outcomes. So I think it's really easy to think about the risks of mental ill health mm-hmm. and isolation, but what are the flow on of all of those things? Well, the risks are actually huge if somebody is is that disconnected in, in life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point to raise because we do just think about sort of the the mental health impacts, but the ongoing impacts in life if someone's feeling disconnected. Thank you for bringing that up. That was, yeah, it kind of shows how important it is to sort of be thinking about this and, and it's working much, to make. It's much broader than, yeah. uh, than a simple, you know, I'm going to feel sad, then depressed and then suicidal. It, it sort of permeates through someone's entire life. Mm, absolutely. Okay. So I suppose on that, we all grow up with different beliefs and ideas, and it's certainly true of attitudes towards um, LGBTQIA plus identities, and we've probably seen that 
quite a lot lately. What if a practitioner personally doesn't agree that gender can be changed, but does still want to provide support in, as they say, a non-biased way? Tash, how would this be approached, do you think? Um, so, look, I agree, absolutely. We've all got our own ideas, beliefs and attitudes. That's part of being human. Mm-hmm. But I guess as health professionals, as mental health professionals, we need to be aware of these and make sure it doesn't affect our duty of care to our patients or clients. If somebody doesn't agree um, with the evidence that gender can be changed or that gender can be different to sex, they still have an obligation to their clients or patients and they need to act in a non-judgmental way. Um, it's a little bit similar to, say, a GP for for various reasons who doesn't agree with prescribing certain medications. They're allowed to have that belief, but they need to make sure that um, the person who needs that medication is referred to somebody who can give it to them. And it's our ethical obligation and kind of aligns with the principle of do no harm. So if any practitioner doesn't believe gender or sexual orientation can be changed or is fluid and they try and convince the uh, client of this, then this is known as conversion and it's illegal in Victoria and many other states. But the biggest thing that you can do is listen. First of all, listen, second of all, listen, and third of all, listen some more. And listening is totally powerful and can make people in this minority group, um, just making them feel heard is massive. Yeah, I think that's a really nice point. You, Jared was just talking about that exclusion, that isolation. And so if someone's willing to just sit and listen, I imagine that would have a massive healing start. Lovely. Uh, Okay, Kerry, a lot of people might be thinking, oh, but I'm really scared of saying the wrong thing, using the wrong pronouns. How am I meant to know? What if I mess it up? What would you say to them? Yeah, we'll just keep it simple. It's just um, really a matter of if you're unsure, just politely ask. And if you do mess it up, which many people do, again, just politely apologise and then attempt to use the right pronoun or preferred name. Yeah, so... It does happen often even with parents whose, whose child might recently have changed, you know, their pronouns or preferred name and, and, and parents will make mistakes for quite some time. Many of them have known that child for many years as a particular name or pronoun. So it, it's just a you know, practice and adjusting and, and just asking. Yeah, lovely. I've definitely seen that in my work with uh, young kids that parents struggle a lot because they've known this child by one name and certain pronouns for a long time. Absolutely. So it's a nice advice to just keep practicing. Mm. Yeah. What does it mean if someone says they use multiple pronouns? So, for example, we see like she slash they. Yes, generally um, that, that would mean the person identifies as non-binary trans or trans non-binary and they will often use he, them, she, they uh, and so forth. And it gives you an option to use either or both. And you don't have to swap all the time. And if you're unsure, if you sort of forget and you, you are aware that, you know, the pronoun they is included, sort, sort of, yeah, tend to stick to they if you're unsure whether it's he, they or she, they. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. So as we've been talking about, there can be a lot of stigma regarding LGBTQIA plus people. This makes not only accessing care hard, but can also limit the support services that are available to form that community that we've heard is really, really important. How can we reasonably address this in our work? Tasha, I might give this one to you. Look, I think it's important to yeah to know to know about the stigma, and a lot of people can be 
afraid to attend um, medical places, uh, mental health appointments, that sort of thing. And basically what I do is I, I try and have a lot of posters saying you're safe here, um, pictures, flags in my room. It lets people know that they're safe and welcome and that um, that practice is is trying to be very inclusive. Some of the other things that can sort of normalise, I guess, you know, different gender identities would be um, putting um, options if people fill out forms, putting different genders, not just male and female, you know, putting transgender, non-binary and anything else Mm -hmm. just to normalise it and trying to use pronouns, um, the right gender, the preferred name. Another thing that's probably really has has been shown to be helpful is if, you know, even any practices, if they have gender-neutral bathrooms, and that kind of, you know, reinforces the it's not just male and female and we don't need to stick with the idea that there's only sort of two genders. Yeah, lovely. So I think Tash spoke to it a little bit just there, but Kerry, I'm wondering if there are things people can do to make their organisations a little bit more LGBTQIA-friendly. Absolutely, and Tash pointed out many of them there. So um, once again, don't just assume. Um, If you're unsure, just politely ask. I use a system at at work where I can put an alert on the client or patient's file where their birth name goes into the system if it's not legally changed. And an alert will come up if anyone providing care for that person, um, it will come up with their preferred name, pronouns and so forth. And they generally need to click on that alert to to make sure they're aware of the pronouns and preferred name they're using. So that's very helpful. And obviously the welcoming, inclusive, you know, flyers, posters around the building, intake assessment forms and client forms and so forth. Um, and our organisation, I won't go into it today because it's, it's quite lengthy, but our organisation um, was dedicated to assuring we received the rainbow tick, which took, you know, quite a few years uh-huh. of work. But but I would recommend yeah, organisations and workplaces to have a look into that. Yeah, I think that's a really nice point about having that alert on the system as well. I know um, in places where I've worked, and particularly with kids where changing names is maybe a bit tricky at that point or it's very new for them, having something in place that makes sure that when they first walk in, they can say their name and know that the admin staff and the practitioner will also use that name. I think that's a really nice point. Yes. In thinking about stigma, Tash, if I have a young person telling me that they're trans, how should I navigate that? How do I support them? The initial thing is listening, Mm -hmm. Um, listening to their story, listening to their feelings, listening to how they're coping, and the whole thing of, and and we reiterate this all the time, is asking, asking the person what's your preferred name, what's your pronouns, how do you identify, finding services that are trans-inclusive and referring where you need to, but also being mindful that there's, like Jared said, there's a lot of mental health issues and asking them how they're going, asking them how they're feeling, that sort of thing. I think that can be the major way to support. But but the number one thing for me is listening. And so when we're thinking about children, children have parents. Um, and often when we're working with children, parents are in the room as well. So Kerry, how would you go about working with the parents of a trans or gender diverse child? Okay, that's, that can be quite a tricky space sometimes mm. to sort of navigate supporting you know, the parent and child, especially if, you know, they're coming from different viewpoints or the parents are slightly non-supportive. 
And with the parents, you, you must keep in mind that you need to explore whether they need supports as well. Some parents may be suffering some form of grief and loss. Uh-huh. Um, you know, many parents are, have a, a level of fear of what this means for their child. Often, you know, there's a ripple effect throughout the family and, you know, the, the parent can be concerned about siblings and other family members as well. I generally sort of say to the parents, you know, sort of just give your child a space to explore how they feel or how they wish to identify and, you know, sort of sit back, be you know, be supportive and, and let the child lead. Oh, that's lovely advice. Yeah, I think I think that fear is what I've seen a lot when I've been working with parents and, and particularly if you're around, oh, what if they change their mind? What if they do all this? And particularly that life will be a bit harder for them yes. and there's a fear. And if they change their mind, that, that's okay. Once again, just give them that space to explore mm-hmm. and just support them. Lovely. What about working with schools? So thinking about kind of using the preferred name pronouns, uniforms. Yes, we work with a lot of schools in our area up here in Orbe Wodonga. We provide capacity building and staff training at schools. You know, many schools these days um, are aware of the supports they need to put in place for their students. Some need a little bit more um, assistance and guidance. We do have resources to help with the schools that can outline all different areas of support they can provide, um, you know, uniforms, alerts on the system, obviously gender-neutral toilets, well-being um, offices and, and so forth. Yes, yeah, so we do help with the school. There is safe schools in Victoria that can also assist. And, and generally the schools are pretty good. And I suggest to the families, you know, make that appointment to meet with the school and, and just sort of discuss, you know, the needs of your child and what they're requiring and, and come to an agreement of how that's going to, to work. Yeah, and I guess what I'm hearing a lot through there is having those conversations and having those tricky conversations sometimes. I think in my experience, there can be a kind of a hesitation to talk about it, but it's important to have those conversations with the young person, with the parents, and then with the school about how Absolutely. do we want to proceed. And, and, and possibly, you know, get a, a student support plan in place mm. that everybody, everybody agrees upon. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, and I have heard in the past, not so much more, you know, some schools saying, you know, oh, I don't think we've ever had a trans or gender diverse child at our school. And, <laughs> that and all that of. really tells me is, is, you know, the child didn't feel safe enough mm. to say so. Mm. Okay. So if we're thinking about working with young people, I'm wondering, Jared, if you could talk specifically about the clinical and medical pathway for transgender children and adolescents. Sure. Um, <laughs> a big so I guess one. at the outset, I wanted to stress that this is only one part of the work uh, sure. that the gender service at Gateway Health does. Uh, it's only one part of the wraparound service provision, and it's only really one part of gender-affirming care, but it's usually a very, very important one and, and one that a lot of emphasis is placed on by the young person. I would remind people that before any medical transition takes place, there's a, a social transition where the young person may choose to identify and present uh, in, a, in a particular manner um, with a particular gender. Uh, and that that actually requires approval from no one. You don't need to see somebody to tell you what you can identify as, who you can be. Uh, that's up to the the young person. 
the clinical pathway, I guess there is a bit more stringency there because there are some uh, some sort of legal hurdles in place and, and it involves medical interventions, which can have obviously effects, but side effects and, and there's reversible and irreversible aspects to, to those interventions. So for those reasons, there's a little bit more of um, quite a lot more stringency put in place around that clinical pathway. That pathway really commences with a referral to the gender service. It could come from uh, the young person and their family, from another practitioner, such as a psychologist or a GP. It might be another mental health clinician. Uh, the people that I work with at the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service will sometimes refer a young person they're working with. And in, in our case, at our clinic, Kerry will do that initial screening and meet with the young person and, and, and a parent or, or parents. And... And, and, and may establish that this is a young person that does have signs of gender incongruence and there's a lot of associated distress. So there may be gender dysphoria uh, suspected. And from there, they'll be referred uh, to meet with myself. There may be other things that, that Kerry does at that stage as well in terms of referrals or um, parents may be uh, referred to the parent group or there may be counselling that's indicated that that's needed in addition to my my review. But amongst that, there might be a referral for a psychiatric assessment to see whether or not this person does meet the criteria for gender dysphoria. So this involves a, a very in-depth assessment with the young person and their family. Obviously, we look at the history of gender identity concerns and uh, incongruence that might have been felt over the lifespan uh, for this young person. And we also ask the family what, that, what, what they may have observed in this young person's life. And sometimes families will say, yeah, we actually did observe a number of things that, that made us wonder whether or not the young person was having some some questions around their gender identity. At the end, this, this may reveal that the young person meets the criteria for gender dysphoria. But in the same assessment, we'll also look at the broader mental health, the physical health of the young person, uh, the social and developmental history, and and really go looking for yes, other things that may be contributing to identity, mm-hmm. uh, but also strengths and vulnerabilities that this young person and that this family may have if they are about to embark on what's going to be a challenging journey. So it's really quite a broad assessment and we take quite a bit of time. Sometimes it's multiple sessions to, um, you know, to really hear about all those things. I'll be looking for other problems that the young person may be experiencing with their mental health and physical health, but particularly their mental health in my case. Uh, so as mentioned, that might be depression and anxiety or disordered eating, uh, neurodevelopmental concerns such as autism, which does have an interesting uh, overlap with gender dysphoria. And this assessment might also reveal some other difficulties, uh, such as differing views amongst parents or unsupportive school and things like that. So at the outcome of that assessment, it might be the case that the young person does meet the criteria for gender dysphoria and that there's not other factors that, that are complicating the presentation. And so they'll be referred to meet again with myself, but with a paediatrician as well. And that will involve a much more in-depth discussion around the medical interventions for gender transition, which will be based on the child's age and developmental stage. So the stage of puberty that they're in, the paediatrician will determine whether puberty needs to be suppressed or, or if puberty is already underway, which is probably more often the case, mm-hmm. uh, whether hormones are prescribed at a, uh, at a certain point uh, for gender transition. So that will, again, involve meeting with family and the young person and discussing uh, what's reversible, what's irreversible, what are the effects and side effects, and allowing the family and the young person to make an informed decision and feel supported in that decision. There's a little bit of um, variability in in, uh, whether the young person was assigned male or female in terms of when those interventions occur, but they only occur in the setting of, of, of strong wraparound support. That support's also extended from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Uh, at the end of the day, the prescription for any uh, cross hormones goes via the Royal Children's Hospital, and they'll also be relied on to uh, assess bone density if that's required. 
fertility preservation uh, if that's required as well. And, and then the hormone therapy, if it, if it does get to that point, will be given uh, by injection or sometimes a gel, but usually by injection by the paediatrician uh, or a GP or the GP's practice nurse. So it's quite a rigorous process. It's quite a long process. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of questions along the way from you know from me, from the family and the young person usually. So a lot of in-depth discussions. And I think that's a necessary part because it is a, a big undertaking. And it's an undertaking really that someone at that age who might be a, a child or, or more commonly an adolescent usually doesn't have to encounter such large problems in their life at that age. So large dilemmas. So it is something that we try to make as well supported as possible. Mm, I think it's probably worth pointing out just how sort of long and involved that process is. I think there can be perhaps a bit of panic um, that mm. it just happens overnight and, and suddenly mm. children are prescribed hormones, but that's yeah, a I think very there's careful sometimes a fear that, um, uh, that a child will, will see me and, and next week they're going to be, uh, you know, if it's an assigned girl that's seeing me, well, by next week she's going to have a moustache. Mm. Uh, no, it's going to be a, a very, very uh, slow and rigorous process. Uh, I often say uh, young people with gender dysphoria probably have to be the most patient people in the world <laughs> because the process for them is usually painfully slow. Mm. Uh, the process, the, the, the parents usually view that approvingly, that that it is quite quite slow because they, they're looking at their young person and, and even when we've got unconditional support from, from a parent, they're usually very much they really want the best outcome for parents. To be honest, I've never met a parent who wants to hurt their child. Mm. Uh, I've always met parents who want the best for, the, for their kids. And so they do want this to be a well-considered and, and very well-informed process and usually acknowledge the limitations of, of someone who might be 14 and being able to make those decisions for themselves. So, yeah, so the young people have to be very patient mm-hmm. uh, and they, they usually are very patient uh, with us, sometimes express frustration. But for the others around them, I think there's a, a sense that, that going slow is, um, you know, is beneficial. It allows that decision to be made in a very informed manner. Yeah, lovely. And I'm wondering if we're thinking about practitioners who are perhaps a little bit more rural. So, Aubrey Wodonga, you've got this great centre where you do these. Is this sort of assessment? Can it happen via telehealth, or does it have to be face to face? It can happen by telehealth. I always prefer face to face. I always prefer face to face appointments for anything. Um, but um, in this case, often we're dealing with young people who've actually got quite a lot of social anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, who feel very uncomfortable about how they might be presenting. And and it's amazing how few young people cancel these appointments, mm-hmm. uh, despite sometimes absolutely horrendous social phobia and having to walk down High Street Wodonga to come into the office is something they would never want to do. But they seem to manage to nearly always do it to, to make it to these appointments. So yeah, it is a it is quite a challenge for the for the kids to get to, but they they usually do get there. Yeah, it speaks to how important it is for them. I think very much so. Yeah, absolutely. Kerry, actually, I might have um, I, I did sort of intentionally omit a little bit of that uh, <laughs> assessment because you've you've done this work for a bit longer than me, uh, and that was around the legals. Uh, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on the on the legal? Oh yes, okay. I'll, I'll just touch briefly on that. In Australia, the law stands as um, in a, any young person, child or young person who would like to access the medical pathway with gender-affirming um, medications such as puberty blockers or stage 2 cross-hormones, testosterone or estrogen. Uh, the law states that anyone under the age of 18 requires full legal consent from both parents who are named on the birth certificate. Okay. And so... Jared, you mentioned um, the social transition before, and so that's when we start to change our name, the way that we appear, 
And within that, something that I've come across is um, legally changing the name. Is the requirements the same as accessing hormones? Kerry, you might be the best to answer that. For legally changing their name? Mm. Um, well, with supportive parents and consenting parents, that's really not a problem. Many mm-hmm. of our families choose to do that once they've been linked in with our services and their psychiatric and paediatric clinics. Um, they tend to sort of go down that pathway of the name changing, um, the legalisation of, you know, um, even on Medicare, mm. um, Centrelink, obviously birth certificate, passports and so forth. So it's it's generally going to visit those organisations and, and just, yeah, just asking for assistance of, of how that's done. And, yeah, they're very helpful. So je- Medicare can be done quite quite quickly, often with a a letter from, say, psychiatrist or or a GP or a paediatrician and the birth certificate and passport will obviously require parents' consent and signatures, yes. Yeah, so that's both parents' consent, again, to legally change the name. So Generally, not always. Okay, sure. I think that stuff's quite important to talk about because I think for a lot of practitioners working with trans and gender diverse young people, those questions come up all the time. Um, and I've certainly had experiences with schools where they say we can't change the name on the roll until it's an official thing. Um, and they actually can. <laughs> okay. I didn't know that at the time, so that's yes, good to know. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's just helpful, even though for a lot of practitioners we probably won't be sort of that heavily involved, but just to have that information to give to the families I think can be super helpful. Sure. And just with the schools, yeah, mm-hmm. generally they like to have, you know, on the, on the main database, the, the birth name, the mm-hmm. legal the legal name. Um, but when it comes to preferred names or pronouns, every school sort of assesses that in different different ways. Some are quite happy to add that. Some mm-hmm. require the parents, you know, to have that conversation. And others, I, I have heard some say that, you know, legally they need the documents to be changed and that that is not the case. Good to know. A little secret to keep in my back pocket. Okay, so with each of our podcast episodes, we're including a list of helpful resources to support people's learnings. Kerry, what are your resources, your go-to recommendations for people wanting to grow their knowledge? Okay, I would say the number one resource was would be the Australian Professional Association for Trans mm-hmm. Health, which the acronym is OSPAR. And their standards of care, you know, for both trans children and adolescents as well as adult care. So they're the national peak body, you know, that that supports, represents, and connecting those um, that are working in this this field, you know, to strengthen the health rights and well-being of all trans people. So that would be my number one go-to with the with the guidelines, the OSPATH guidelines, standards of care for trans health. Um, I often often refer a lot of parents and young people, and I'm sure Tash and Jared do the same with some adults, to ACON's Trans Mm -hmm. Hub. They're based in New South Wales. They are an absolute amazing resource. Um, They have items on on their website such as, you know, gender-affirming doctor's list, information about medical affirmation, information for clinicians and allies, binders, social transitionally, surgical procedures, a wealth, a wealth of, of knowledge on Trans Hub, obviously the Royal Children's mm-hmm. Hospital um, is a wonderful website for to have a look at some resources they have up on their site. Safe Schools, Minus 18, Zoe Bell Collective, Q Life, 
oh, obviously our gender service, our website at Gateway Health Wodonga. We have uh, lots of links to resources there. Here's Jared and Tash. Can you add to that? I'd probably uh, just add go shopping on the Midas 18 website. Uh, if you want to create a, a waiting room or a clinic or office that uh, feels more safe and accepting, they've got terrific range of, of products of posters or badges or lanyards or all sorts of things that you can deck out your office with. And yeah, they'll have that posted to you in no time. And we have a local not-for-profit small organisation here that also have have a shop available for posters, flags, links, even cute little backpacks for young young children with little unicorns and rainbows all over them. And that's called Friends of Hume Phoenix. So they have a website and a shop link on there as well. I think there's something really important in having those those flags and those seemingly little things um, just present. I... This is a bit of an odd story, but I went to a hotel once and they had a buy pride flag on their reception desk, which was like an odd choice. But I was like, all right, cool. And so just seeing that out in when you're out and about, and I think especially when you're trying to receive care, knowing that, oh, these people know what those flags mean and they know um, they might know about me. Um, I think that can be super helpful. Yeah, and, and that's what we can also add, you know, to, to what can businesses and organisations do as Tash and I spoke to mm. earlier um, and we forgot Tash to add you know simple things as lanyards yes inclusive um, lanyards that show visibility yeah, and support absolutely and um, yeah even even things like badges that have got your pronouns on them I, I noticed that a lot of my patients come in and go oh cool where'd you get those so just having little things like that just makes a big difference it breaks down the barriers yeah, and it's something super easy that any clinician can do to just jump online, spend a couple of dollars and get some flags or some lanyards, badges. Beautiful. Okay, so we've covered quite a bit, and I thank you all for being so generous and sharing your knowledge and your expertise. If our listeners were to take away one thing and implement it in their practice tomorrow, what would you hope it would be? I might start with you, Jared. I would Tell practitioners to remind the young people, the young gender diverse people in your care that they're safe in your care. You can't promise them, and I would be careful not to promise them things that that, that you can't deliver. Uh, you can't promise them that they can transition in the next week or month or probably not even in the next year, but you can promise that you'll do your best to hold a safe space for them, uh, that a space where they can return to, they can feel listened to and, and safe and advocated for. Uh, that really comes back to putting the young person at the centre of decision-making. So holding a safe space and reminding them of that if you feel you need to. Lovely. Thank you. Uh, Tash? I think the most important thing that I'd recommend is don't be afraid to engage with um, transgender and gender-diverse people. Um, I know when I started out, I was like, I know nothing and I really knew even less about the medical and I'm like, should I be seeing this these people? So if you can listen, that's kind of um, all you need to start with. Obviously, as you see more of these people, you get better at um, not putting your foot in your mouth and using the wrong pronouns and that. But usually they're very they're very forgiving. So don't be afraid. These people are great. They're wonderful. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's a nice piece of advice, even just to say, oh, I don't really have a lot of knowledge about this, but I'm happy to sit next to you as we work through it together. I think that can be yeah. powerful. Kerry, is there anything that you would like to add? Yes, for um, health professionals, um, I'll take it back to the family again. I'll just say sort of 
and just be mindful to ensure you know that that you're asking those questions to see whether you know the parents may be needing counseling or support and so forth and and sort of look at the, the family as a whole because it's really critical you know to support the family to support the child yeah i think there's a, a statistic that I'm going to get it wrong, but it's about 60% of the like social well-being is dependent on having good social support. And so for young people, that's often their families. Absolutely. Mm. It can make the world of difference. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you all very much. That brings us to the end of our questions. I just want to say thank you again for coming and speaking with me and sharing your expertise. Uh, I think this is such a valuable, valuable topic to talk about and for people to learn about. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Dale. Thank you, Dale. I hope that this conversation has sparked some understanding for our listeners and a reminder that we'll have additional resources and the transcript to access on our learning portal, the Peregrine Portal. Thank you again to Tash, Jared and Kerry for being a part of this and thank you for listening. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au.